0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
1: Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
2: This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. When comedian and actress Leslie Jones joined the cast of Saturday Night Live in 2014, she held the distinction of being the oldest person to ever join the cast at 47 years old. But that detail might just be the least interesting thing about her. Jones was on Saturday Night Live for five seasons, first as a writer and then as a cast member. She became known for her hilarious weekend update reports, as well as her outrageous sketches playing everyone from Whoopi Goldberg to Donald Trump. In her new memoir, simply titled Leslie F. And Jones, I can't say the actual word on the radio, Jones makes clear that she's no overnight success. For years, she worked odd jobs to get by while doing comedy shows everywhere. In the book, Jones also shares details of her life that she's never spoken about before. Her life growing up as a military brat, working comedy clubs in a male-dominated field, and the mistakes and lessons she learned along the way. Leslie Jones was nominated for three Primetime Emmy Awards for her work on Saturday Night Live. In 2016, she starred in Ghostbusters. And in 2021, she starred opposite Eddie Murphy in Coming to America, for which she won an MTV Movie and TV Award. Leslie Jones, welcome to Fresh Air. <laughs> 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 Gotta love when a conversation starts oh, with laughing.
3: God. Yeah, because I was just like, wow, this is so crazy. When she's reading the credits, I was just like... I went back to sitting in my living room and thinking, oh, God, how long am I going to have to do this until somebody realizes that I'm actually funny? I know. Yeah. How
2: many moments did you have like that? I a mean, billion.
3: Yes. A billion. Like it's Because I knew I was funny. I knew I was funny. And I knew that they didn't know what I was. They knew that I was an entity. They just did not know. And up until I got SNL. Nobody really knew what to really do with me, and everybody, trust me, they tried. But what the problem was is that I knew what I was, but I didn't tell them because I felt like they wouldn't get it.
2: You are undeniably funny, but Thank you'd, you, <laughs> when you were young, and I'm talking like when you were young, young comedy wasn't something you saw yourself being in like you you saw it as like Richard Pryor but you didn't see yourself in Richard Pryor no
3: no I was I was a funny kid I I, every time I meet somebody from the past they go yeah you was crazy you was like a little fun but I never thought of myself as funny I thought as myself as just like I just like to have fun and I was emulating a lot of comics that I would watch Mm -hmm. you know um so uh when when it came down to it like and my friend entered me in the contest, I was like, I'm not a comic. I I, I always thought I was gonna be an actress, that yeah. the one day that I would I would um play Whoopi Goldberg, like I would play a comic. I never thought I would be a comic. Yeah. So Your yeah. friend
2: entered you in this contest, Colorado State University, you were a freshman. Yeah. So this contest was the funniest person on campus contest. And you say that the moment you picked up the mic, you walked on the stage, it was like a religious even, I experience. I can't even
3: explain it more than when I grabbed the mic, I just remember thinking, I've been doing this forever already. Like, oh, my God, this fits like a glove. It, it's almost like putting on a shirt and going, oh, God, this shirt fits. It It almost felt like I saw a line leave from the mic and just went out. And it was like, oh, that's the path I'm taking. It, it it was like I had already been doing it and didn't know I had been doing it. It was just so natural.
2: And then when you were nineteen, a young Jamie Foxx mm-hmm. was the headliner for this club called The World. The
3: World. Uh with Magic Johnson used to own own the world. It was back in the day. Back okay. in the day, like eighty seven. This was eighty seven. So Jamie blew you away, and so you were like, I'm gonna blow Jamie away. Well, I was well, first it was like Jamie when Jamie started performing I was like, Oh, there's other comedians other than Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and Whoopi Goldberg who know how to do this type of comedy because it's a certain type of comedy. It's it's a, a very um when you could take from your life and then you could make someone just be right there, or you could just relate. I was like, he's performing like this, and I'm like, oh my God. So that means that I can learn how to do this then. So my friend that was with me, she she was, you know, uh knew the promoter, and she I told her to go and like hook up with the promoter, do whatever you gotta do, so we can so I could talk to Jamie Foxx. So we all went to Fat Burgers. We all went to Fat Burgers and we was waiting on our burgers and Jamie was over there. And I think I flirted with him at first, but because I was like, okay, if, if that's what it's going to take for me to find out what I need to, if you think I'm cute, then I'm definitely going to try to talk to you. But he didn't. He was like, he didn't. I don't know, didn't think I was cute or whatever. He just was like, you were young, and he knew I was 19. So he was like, he was like, you 19. He was like, of course you wasn't funny. He was like, you ain't got nothing to talk about yet. He was like, he was like, and the stuff that you're talking about, you're not funny enough yet to talk about it. He was like, so you're just up there doing jokes. He was like, go live. He was like, he was like, go live. Go, go, uh, get jobs. Go get fired. Go get hired. Go quit. Go break hearts. Go get your heart broken. Go, go and live. Go live. Go live so you can have something to talk about. So, I, I just remember. You point. went to live. I went live. So for six
2: years Yep. after meeting Jamie Foxx. That was in 87. You quit comedy, essentially.
3: Or you didn't quit, but you, like, went to go I, live. I, I went to go live. But I'm telling you, at the root of every job I would get, everything I would be assigned to, I would be like, this is temporary. I always went in a temporary because I was like, this is not, I'm going to be a comic. I'm going to be a comic. This is just until I'm a comic.
2: Leslie, we have to go through some of the um, jobs you held. Okay for Hot Minute, you were a justice of the peace. Yeah,
3: I married people. I married people. And I was I was really good at it. I, I actually was good at it because I'm funny. But my the, when I first started, the judge pulled me into the office and he was like, hey, are you reading the card when you're doing the ceremony? I was like, "Nah, I know it by heart. He was like, you actually don't know it by heart because you're saying awfully wedded husband and awfully wedded wife. And I was like, that's That's what it is, right? right? And he was like, "It's lawfully," and please read from the card. And I was like, "Well, you know, Awfully is pretty fun." He just, he just looked. I know he wanted to laugh, but he was just like, "Leslie, please go and do it the right way."
2: And then from there they're like all right let's move her to the annulment office. And
3: then all the people I married literally most of them came in and got an annulment. So I was like I guess the awfully and the lawfully was true. I guess I did jinx y'all mess. So, you know. What I want to know though. Jeez. You worked for Scientologists. Yes, I did, twice. I had two jobs with Scientologists because they own Glendale. You, if you, if I mean, you, you don't work in Glendale without working for some Scientologists. Right, which is right outside of Los yeah. Angeles. So what they do is they buy a lot of businesses. They have a lot of businesses. I guess that's how they bring a lot of money to their thing, or I don't know what it is. What but,
2: were you doing for them?
3: Well, the first job that I had for them was uh, with the Doring Company. And I remember because I used to always had to write it on this... Uh, little um, survey because that's what they did with surveys. Like if you bought a car and somebody called you and it would be like, yeah, we'd like to ask you how your car was. You were the person I calling. I was that person calling. So you get money for that. So, and it was a good paying job. I I remember it, it you know, pay the rent. And uh, I lived right around the corner from there. And, um, they loved me because I was very enthusiastic I was very happy would come in you know I have an energy I would come in and you know just be happy and everybody be happy to be at work or whatever and they was always trying to hat me that's what they call it hat you when they want you to join and then they want to move you up they want to make you feel important and stuff so I remember that lady she was moving me up in the office which I didn't mind I liked doing the surveys because when she came at me like this, I went back to doing surveys, but she was trying to move me up, but she kept saying, hat me. I want to hat you. I want to hat you. And I was like, what is that hat stuff? What is that? And she was like, oh, you know, in the Scientology world, woo, 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 woo. and I was like, no, nah, I want to go back to surveys because I'm a Christian. You're, you let them know I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I don't know what y'all believe in. No. So then I went and worked for a construction company, and they were a family deal. And I didn't really like being around them either because I always felt like they was going to kidnap me. I don't know why. So I was I went and looked for another Scientology because there was a billion of them in Glendale. Well, look, you definitely took Jamie's advice as far as went, that's concerned. Girl, please, yes. I went and had a life. Yeah,
2: Leslie, you really like physical comedy. Yeah, Lucille Ball, for instance, yeah. taught you that you can't just be happy or sad with your. You know, you can't just, like, show emotion or happiness. sadness. Yeah. You got to show it in your face. Well, you just
3: be it. I remember being in an audition because I was in a Martin Lawrence movie, and the director, I remember I was auditioning, he was like, Leslie, you don't have to act mean. He was like, you could just be it because you got that face that your emotions is going to come across your face. And Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett, uh, um, Melissa McCarthy, too, like, very good, very, the face. Just face, like, that's the one thing I want to learn is that.
2: You know, I heard Jim Carrey and, of course, we know Jerry Lewis talk about, though, like the physical toll of physical comedy, like literally on your body. What about for you? Do you feel it?
3: Well, you know what's so weird? Like, I played basketball since I was the sixth grade. I didn't start getting injured until I started doing stage stuff and started uh, at SNL and all that. I think those were my my injuries, like— Like, just because you give it all. Like, to me, John Ritter is one of the best physical... Wait, can I just say... Yes.
2: I don't think I've ever... You wrote about him in the book. I don't think I've ever met anyone else who describes that feeling that you feel for John Ritter. I feel that, too. It's I, like a comfort. He brings a comfort.
3: It's It's so... He. I hate that that's one person I never got to meet. Because when I say that man would fall over a couch and I would die laughing because there's no one else who could do that. that jerk thing that he would do. He would do this... He would just... It was just such good movements. And then John Ritter went on to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and played the malfunction robot and won an Emmy for I was just like, just, that's like artistry, you know, mm-hmm. Buster Keaton. It's just a physical thing. Like, I always tell everybody, don't try to reinvent comedy. Comedy is all its own entity. You, you're just like you're trying to reinvent the wheel. The wheel will always be round. It needs to be. You know what I'm saying? So, so just try to just learn the tricks and make them yours. Like, slipping on a banana will always be funny. And I don't care what nobody say. Slipping on a banana... Will always, always be, be funny. one of the funniest physical jokes. But ever. it's really
2: interesting. You playing basketball from sixth grade. You went to college to play basketball, yeah. and I feel like that feels like that's really physical. And it's also you're running. Like you're. I didn't know. But never it's re- not... in- injure myself. What yeah. is it about like
3: just because, being in because that? Because you because you love it. Like I didn't love basketball like that. I wasn't gonna. i throw myself. I wasn't gonna do all of that. But comedy. If I'm trying to get a joke cross. Oh yeah, I'm a. I may twist my knee. I may. Like I didn't fell off stages, I didn't fell off tables, I didn't fell off chairs. I've I've just it's just a real. It does take a toll on, especially when you start getting older and start forgetting. But let me tell you something about the joy of watching physical comedy. If you do it right, people love you because you don't forget that physical move, you don't forget the dancing, you don't forget that. Especially if you're there live and watching them do that. It is magnificent. I love physical comedy. Do you treat your body
2: differently now? I saw in your last special you had on like a brace on your
3: leg. Well, (laughs) it's so weird, girl. Let me tell you, the stages that you go through, not only as a comic but as a woman. When I first started comedy, I thought I had to be sexy. I used to wear heels on stage. I remember that. I used to wear the splits and all of that. And then, you know, you, at the end of it, I'm sweaty, and maybe the makeup didn't all melted on me. You look gross. So it's like, and then, two, this is why I tell women, don't be afraid to do, be yourself. Because, see, when you, it, it, there's women who can go dressed up on stage, then do your thing. But this is what happens. When you walk on stage, the first thing that happens is a woman look at you, and they go, Oh, does she think she cute? And then they look at their man and they go, does my man think she cute? All that's happening while you're trying to open up. Yeah. So I always say in your first couple of years, t-shirt, jeans, tennis shoes. If you can make it lovely and cute, do that because you don't have to prove you're a woman. And listen, you could do whatever you want. I'm telling you, as far as I've been doing this a long time, I know what that's doing.
2: Okay, there is something that lives rent-free in my head, and it's something that you said Cat Williams told you, that once you get rid of your desperation, you're going to blow up. What yeah. did he mean by that?
3: Man, okay, so at the time when he said we was on tour, and I was just very frustrated. I was just like, I don't know why I ain't blown up yet. Like, this person ain't blown up, this person ain't blown up. But I always try to not try to look at other people's blow up because they should blow up, you know. But I was just like, dang, if they like her, why they don't like me, you know. If they like her, why they don't like me, you know. What am I doing wrong? We all and, do that. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, yep. what am I doing wrong? Like, I got to get this, you know. I was Why ain't I making it and stuff. And damn, I'm like, I'm broke. Like, uh, think about Tom Hanks in Punchline, like, at that moment when they was going to pick somebody else. And he was like, nah, I'm not going to wait a year. I need to make it now. Right. That is some real, like, that's hard. Like, every time I see that scene, I'll be like, oh, oh, that's so real. But that's desperation. Mm. Do you do you get what I'm saying? Like, he was like, he was like once you get rid of that desperation, you're going to blow up. And I was so angry at him. I was like, what do you mean? How can I not be desperate? I'm broke. I have no money. Yeah. So how can I not be desperate? He was like, you don't have no money, but you're not desperate. You're talented. You have talent. You don't have an empty basket of tools. You just don't have no money. It like it, That's nothing. He said, he said, so now you're working from a different basket. He said, you're working from a desperate basket. So now you're going to do anything. You're going to take any offer. You're going to do anything to make it, and that's not going to last. Yeah. Stop working from that desperation. You start, you start knowing that this is, about, this is about, oh, no, this is not about me blowing up so I can get rich. This is about I want to be the best comic, and I'm going to blow up because of that.
2: I want to go back to your early life for a moment, mm-hmm. if you're okay with that. Mm-hmm. Your family growing up um, was made up of your mom, your dad, and your brother, your, your younger brother. Nuclear family, like yep.
3: straight nuclear family, yeah.
2: You all moved around because your dad was in the military, yeah. you're a military brat. And your dad later worked at a um, at a radio station in Memphis as a studio technician. It was the first all-black station yeah, in W-D-I-A. the United States yep. yeah. before moving to Inglewood, to work for Stevie Wonder's uh, radio yeah, station. Yeah, and we
3: moved to Linwood. We moved to Linwood. Yes, but the radio station was in Inglewood. Yeah. That's
2: right. That's right. Did you ever visit your dad at
3: work at, at Stevie Wonder's uh, I, station? I I might have, and just don't remember. I only particular time I remember that I was going to go to work with him was because I was in love with the DeBarge uh, DeBarge family. I was, oh yeah. I was. I was. Who was it? <laughs> Jeez, it, was, it was like a DeBarge poster on one of my wall and Duran Duran on the other wall. Yeah. So I was just like in love with DeBarge and they were coming to the radio station. And like whenever you see the fans cry, like you see them cry over Michael Jackson and stuff like that. I used to be like, Why? I that's how I was about DeBarge. Like, yeah. So my dad was like, oh, you, you're going to come to the studio. And I, I literally burst into tears. And I said, Daddy, I don't want to go because I I felt they were so beautiful they wouldn't like me, Mm. you know, because I'm a little black girl. You know, they're not going to like me. They're all beautiful and light-skinned. You know, right now, that you know, Mm. thinking about that, that's what I thought. Taking you back. Absolutely. It's so weird. You know, that's what I was thinking in my head. If I had said that out loud to my dad, my dad would be like, get your butt in the car, girl. You finna go meet these four. But I I think he was like, oh, she a fan freaking out because I was like, oh, my God, I can't meet him. But I sent my brother. To, and he took a picture, and my brother said, <laughs> "My brother said he got a sign, and you know what they said? They said that they, they wish you had came." Yes. I cried all night. I was like, "I could have met El DeBarge, but I, I didn't know what I, I probably would have fainted or something." I, I didn't want to embarrass myself. So funny on my forty fourth birthday, I was having it at the comedy store, and guess who walks up? Elder El DeBarge. I had to, pick, I got to find a picture. I When I say the smile in that picture, is so, so big. And I told him that story, and he just laughed. He was like, that is hilarious. hilarious. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You know, um, your dad worked at, at Stevie Wonder's radio station yeah. for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that you saw through your dad was a man who wanted to be successful.
3: He wanted to be. Um, he, at one time, you know, I think he, he managed or either got a gig for Tony Tony Tone. For the group, Tony, yeah, but Tony, they Tony. wasn't famous then. They yeah. wasn't famous then, and I think he got a gift for them, and then they signed with someone else. But like, yeah, he wanted to be in the business for sure. He wanted, but he never quite got. I think there. I, oh, that's why I wish he was alive, because Lord, he would love everything. Oh my God, he would love this. Oh, he would just be tickled pink with this. So, thing is, you always knew.
2: Seeing him, seeing Mm -hmm. how he moved. Mm -hmm. How did it influence how you moved?
3: My dad always worked. He always worked. He was always thinking. He was always... My dad was always so super confident in himself and in, in his ideas. And he would always tell me, like... This is so funny because like I hear, like, parents be trying to get their kids to get married or try to get their daughter married. Or... My dad never did that. My dad was always like, I want you to make your own money. He used to always say, I don't want no man taking care of you. I want you to take care of yourself. Be undeniable. they going to tell you that you're black and that you can't make it. They're going to tell you you're a woman and you, and you can't, can't make, make it. it. They're going to tell you you're a black woman and you can't make it. He said, please don't listen to them. He said, because if you work hard, if you work hard, you can't be denied. <laughs>
2: Our guest today is comedian and actress Leslie Jones, who has written a new memoir about her life and career. We'll hear more of our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase.
1: Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
2: Today we're talking to comedian and actor Leslie Jones. She's written a new memoir titled Leslie F. Jones. I can't say the actual word on the radio. It's about her life and rise to fame. Jones was on Saturday Night Live for five seasons She's also appeared in the 2016 female reboot of Ghostbusters and in Eddie Murphy's 2021 Coming to America sequel. Last January, she was the first guest host for The Daily Show after the departure of Trevor Noah. When we left off, Leslie Jones was talking about growing up with her family. You also had a really special relationship with your mom.
3: Yeah. She had a
2: stroke during your freshman year in college. Yeah. I... Got chills reading about Mm. the dream that you had the night before you got the call that she had. the stroke. Yeah. Would you mind sharing that Uh, story?
3: Yes. Okay. So, ooh, I hope I don't get emotional. But I I remember, you know, I'm going to tell you, kids, we take advantage of our parents. We do not love them as much as we need to love them. We complain more than we love them. I used to fuss at her cuz she would come up to the campus and clean up my room when I wasn't there. Like she would just do stuff like that. And 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 I remember her talking to one of my teammates and um your basketball
2: teammates. Yeah, best and, yeah. and
3: and they were like they were like she's so good. And I just remember we was in I think it was I want to say we was Utah. We was playing in Utah and we were delayed at the airport. All of us was laying on the floor. Because it was a big basketball team. I was tall. We laying on the floor. And I fell asleep. Because I could sleep anywhere. And my coach would just be so angry. Because he'd be like, you just fall asleep anywhere. Yeah. So I wish I could do that now. But those days. Anyway, I fell asleep. And I just remember this big white room. It was just a white room. Nothing was in it. And it was just a silver table. And my mom was in the middle of that table. She had this white, little white robe on. And she was in a fetal position. And I just remember waking up and ran to a telephone because I was like, hey, I, I, my brother answered c- crying. He was like, they just took him to the hospital, you know, and I was like, he was just crying. He was like, I don't know what's when she couldn't breathe. I, it was just like he was freaking out. So I always tell everybody, and I tell this and I say this all the time, it is a very, very, very scary world without your parents, hmm. especially ones that loved you. And I know they don't always get it right, but at some point you have to give them some grace.
2: There was this moment, because your mother, after she had the stroke, she was never the same ever. again. And you looked at her. There was a moment when you, you went home, you looked at her, and you realized that she would never be the same. And yes, in a way, yeah. like you— at, I said at goodbye that young, to her. You said that,
3: goodbye. I say goodbye to her. And it's not like I didn't go visit her and stuff after that, but I was like, you are not going to ever be— my mom again and I hate that I maybe did that because maybe I should have put effort forward for her real rehabilitation but I was a I was a kid you know and and real talk the main thing in my head is I remember when she, the last time she got sick and almost died she said to me the reason that I think I made it was because I asked God to let me survive until my children could take care of themselves so I just remember thinking yes my mom is sick but every time I went to go and visit her she always had this look of like you better be Please be out there. Please don't be out there giving up.
1: Like was she, I, I could would she and, speak?
3: No, she couldn't speak or nothing, but she knew what was going, going on. on. And I would go and visit her, and I would cry with her. Anytime my brother was mean to me, I would go and cry with her. And and she would just—she understood. You know, I saw her more than anyone. So, yeah. uh Your mom and dad oof. died six months apart. Which is really weird because— I think my mom secretly probably was trying to outlive my dad. Oh, really? Because I think yeah. everybody was. I think with everything that happened between them and how everything went, I think my mom was just like, "Yeah, I'm outlive you. <laughs> I'm outlive you." But yeah, uh, I, she passed away six months after my my dad passed away, and
2: at the I time you were. You were a working comic at the time, but you Uh, hadn't made it, made it yet. uh,
3: I hadn't made it yet, and they did not die with life insurance, so I didn't go to either one of their funerals because I was working to pay for them.
2: Leslie, I'm just thinking about what you had to access within yourself, though, to go on stage, knowing you were doing these sets, making people laugh so that you could pay
3: for your parents' funerals. Girl, that first gig, because I had to go to Amsterdam, and I remember I missed the first flight. I missed the first flight that I was at, that was booked, and I it was because that had happened, and I'm like my friend came and picked me up with her boyfriend. Man, I was crying so hard because nobody had ever seen me cry like that. Oh, I'm trying not to cry now. It was really hard. I couldn't do. I was helpless, helpless, in everything. You know, I couldn't. I wasn't rich to to send them money. I wasn't. And then hearing about my dad, who was such a strong person, he was so strong, 6'5", he was such a strong man, and for him to be so weak when he died, and it's just too, so unexpectedly, because I always thought I would get the call by my mom. And yeah, that first gig, that first gig out of the box, because I was so, you know, I can work through a lot of pain now, but I don't know. I think that might have been the first experience of me trying to perform yeah. under such pain. Like, And also, too, death is like something else. Like whenever, you know, it's a distance death, that's different than somebody right up on you death. Yeah. Like your dad, like it was just so hard to perform. And I was awful that first night. But the promoter was like, "Man, the fact that you perform," he was like, "He was like, you're definitely getting paid, and you're gonna be." And I told him, "I was like, I promise, it won't be like this, you know, tomorrow night." So, hmm. yeah, it was hard. Both was your mother
2: hard. and your brother,
3: yeah, died at the age of thirty-eight. And you, you—well, my mom thought... got sick at the age of thirty-eight. She yeah. actually died uh, like twenty-some years later. Okay. Yeah. Now, my brother died at thirty-eight, though.
2: And you really felt like maybe I you wouldn't like, live that yeah, long. I felt like,
3: yeah, 38, I was like, oh, they trying to get rid of all the Joneses. <laughs> I was like, I'm next. So after my brother died, I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> I'm about to do everything. I did not care. I don't care what nobody say. I'm living like I'm doing the jokes that I thought I couldn't. I'm doing everything. Let's take a
2: short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Leslie Jones. She's written a new memoir about her life and career in comedy. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR.
4: This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com.
2: at one of your sets, was like, oh, yeah, call Lauren Michaels and said, you got to have this woman. And you went on an audition because they were looking for a black woman at the time. So the audition process for SNL sounds pretty intense, of course. And you were up against some pretty heavy hitters. Like, it was you and several comedians, but then there were some black actresses. Okay.
3: They weren't heavy hitters to me. I mean, listen— I'm Leslie Jones. I'm the heavy hitter walking into the room. Trust and believe. I Listen, give all respect to those ladies. But none of them was a comic like me. None of them was going to ever challenge me on stage. But what they had on me, though, was the sketch stuff. They had that down on me. So SNL hired you as a
2: writer. You didn't want to be a writer. You were like... So dejected by that, but you no. Took but it.
3: Chris had warned me. Chris had already told me. He said, "Listen, there's no way they're gonna let you go." I, he was like, "I know, Lauren's not gonna let you go." And Keenan told me the same thing. Keenan was like, "There's no way." Once you get in as a writer, they're, they're well, not there's gonna... no way they're letting you walk out the building. Mm-hmm. They know you're something, so they You'd... they called me and hired me as a writer. Yeah. And I told Lauren, I was like, "Listen, I'm being honest with you. I'm not a writer. I'm a in front of the camera chick."
2: But he told you, he you said, know, "Just I...
3: come. Yeah, yes. I don't know what to do with you, but we'll figure it out." Right. You know.
2: I mean writing in the beginning it wasn't easy because you had all of these pitches that were rejected at first.
3: Yeah, because I was pitching like a comic. Yes, instead and not instead of pitching like yeah. a sketch person. And that's the thing that I have really had to learn was that when you write in a joke in a sketch it has to have foundation. Like it has to have a story, it has to have character names, it has to have, you know, right. a flow. It can't yeah. it's not just you on stage talking about it, you know. So
2: Chris Rock, Keenan Thompson, they were like, they're going to want you. You're there. You're a writer. You're doing your thing. You're you're trying to work out even writing. Yeah. But once you started performing, in many ways, you write about this in the book, they started to treat you like a caricature. You mean once I became a cast member? Once you became a cast member. Well,
3: because, again, I've been doing comedy so long. It's like, I know what I am and I know what I'm giving them. At SNL, they take that one thing and they ring it. They ring it because that's the machine. So whatever it is that I'm giving that they're so happy about, they feel like it's got to be that all the time or something like that. So it was like a character of myself, you know what I'm saying? So it was like now either I'm... Trying to love on the white boys or beat up on the white boys or I'm doing something just like loud. I knew once I did these things, though, I knew it was going to happen because I know the power of them. You were so good at Weekend Update. Yes, because that's comedy. That's nothing but me sitting down doing stand-up behind the desk. That was my, yo, let me tell you something. that That was like, yes, that was mine, you know. So when I left, I was like, yeah, this is the worst. But no, man, it was just bittersweet. Because it really is a training. You know, for some people, it should be the springboard. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so much
2: good has happened from your time
3: yeah. on SNL. Yeah. It yeah. also sounds like Keenan Thompson became, like, He's, oh, your he, homie. The, the first day I met Keenan, we were brother and sister instantly. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. Lauren Michaels. Love Lauren Michaels. At the time when you, like I said, when you leave, you're just so angry because you can't. But... In his defense, I used to always be like, he's a puppet master. So he has to make the cast happy, has to make the writers happy. He has to make the WGA happy, has to make NBC happy. Then he has to make a family in Omaha, Nebraska, Mm -hmm. who's watching the show happy. Imagine the strings that have to go out to him. So it's a machine that has to work.
2: It's so you interesting know? when you say it's it's like a machine because, right, you see folks like you on there. You're like, yes, there's Leslie Jones. I mean, all the way back when Eddie Murphy was on right. there. Right, But yeah. there's always just one, and they always
3: do have their signature, and then they leave. And in fairness, because I remember I was talking to another cast member that retired, and they said, but in fairness, like, that's how they do all of them. Not just I, the black ones. Not just the black ones. And I look back and I was like, oh, that's right, Taryn. Taron Killam, can Taron wanted to do so much other stuff, but they would only have Taryn in those very masculine and singing and stuff. And I said, "Oh, oh
1: this is the yeah, machine.
3: this yeah. is a machine." Mm-hmm. You know,
2: the advice Jamie Fox gave you about like living life, mm-hmm. being yourself. You have definitely like a catalog of stories now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta ask you about one you've oh, talked I love about. Them, baby, you've talked about this one a lot already over the last few years. But there's a element of it that I, I want to just talk with you about. So, you met somebody on Match.com.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: You sent them nudes, and. Then the FBI was involved over it because you're famous by now. Like this is like Which you're is famous. is so
3: funny that you're not smart enough to know that you're you, famous. No, but wait. You know, what's so funny about that. I started dating someone a little bit after that, and I sent him a nude, and he again. He literally sent me back the text. You ain't learned, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The thing I want to ask you about, so the FBI was
2: involved. It was a whole thing. Oh, my God. Because you sent this person nudes, and then they were like, we're going to use this against you. TMZ even called you and was like. Yeah,
3: well, what happened was they got Homeland Security involved, and then the FBI got involved, and they took over. And instead of them just taking my computer, they made me send. What it is I sent to the dude? So you sent nudes again? And then but so to the whoever FBI, was hacking yeah. me because the Ghostbuster stuff was going on too, and I was fighting against that. So whoever was hacking me was just trying to hack me because dude from Twitter was like, they are on your account. And like just, they to, have to protect just to just so the audience yes.
2: knows, with the Ghostbuster stuff, yeah. you were starring in Ghostbusters and you were getting a lot of. hate I was on getting social a lot of hate already,
3: it. so it was just like in the midst of all of that happening. So I know it was just super hackers going, "We're going to get her," or whatever, you know, whatever. They went into the email because they got. My passport, they got my ID, and then they got the nudes. So I woke up to a phone call from the chick from TMZ, the black girl. I, and I hope you listening because I will <laughs> never forgive you. I will never forgive you because she calls my phone and she goes, Hey, do you know that your nudes and your passport and your ID is up on? And I've looked at the knowledge like, Who is this? Oh, this is so and so, so and so from uh, TMZ. And I was like, Well, how did you get my number? Did you use the number? And she was like, well, I'm just trying. I was like, you ain't trying to help. And I hung up. Mm -hmm. And I called my publicist. And my publicist had it down in 20 minutes. But 20 minutes is like 20 days on the internet. So
2: you got hacked in addition to being threatened by this person you met on Match.com. And so then you put together a sketch for the Emmys and for Weekend Update.
3: Yes. Yes. So after all the hacking and all that stuff happened, we were like, you know... I, and me, I was just like, I'm not going to play the victim. I'm not a victim. This is not a victim. This is a, a, a me being harassed by some disgusting actor that went into my private thing. So they wanted me to play a victim and I'm not a victim. I've refused to play a victim because that means that you don't have control of nothing about me. You want to see me naked? Ask. <laughs> That's what it's about. So when the Emmys hit me, I was like, this is the perfect sketch to do with the accountants. Like, y'all got this in the suitcase. Y'all need to put my Twitter account in there. And, you know, that was the whole gist of it. Now, when I got back to to Weekend Update, you know, I am that person that's going to address it. And I really, really was about, like, if you wanted to see me naked, ask. I have a trove of pictures I can send you. (laughs) <laughs> and they way better quality than the ones that got hacked. You know, and I, I the whole thing there was a preaching about is, like, no one else has the power to come and break you. The only person that can break you is you.
4: Hmm.
3: Don't give nobody else that power. You've worked so hard to get to where you are.
2: Does success feel like
3: you thought it would? Absolutely not. It's, uh it's a no, it's... I, t- I was just telling this to somebody... Today I was like, man, I used to sit on my gigs when I was with what nothing and was selling DVDs and stuff. I would sit but after my gig I would run to the front just to hug and sign stuff and be and get in touch with people. And I thought that when I got famous that was going to be the my most favorite part was connecting with my fans. And and it is sometimes, but it is hard. It is very Cause I have to always tell myself, okay, you're you're famous. Hey, you can't smack that person, man. You're famous. <laughs> hey, man, you can't curse that person out, man. You're famous. You know, now some things I break through. I'll be like, if I'm gonna go to the Beyoncé concert, I'm going to the Beyoncé concert. It's uh-huh. happening. You know, y'all just gonna have to deal with it. And I always try to do the Arsenia Hall Magic Johnson uh rule. Is to make yourself seen so much that people get used to seeing you, so they don't attack you. Mm. And, and and a lot of people see me out all the time. I'm always at the gym. I'm always Ralph's. I'm always at the comedy store, and I act normal as hell. I don't shut stuff down. I don't send ahead. I try to be as normal as as hell. I try to dress myself down. The mohawk was a big thing. I had to get rid of the mohawk because the it was mo- too much of it a was signature. it was yeah. all. I mean, and people like I could be with Keenan, and they would not know even see Keenan Thompson. Kenan, they yeah. didn't have asked. Keenan take pictures and they look and go, oh, my God, Keenan. Yeah, like it's just a thing. You're a six-foot-tall, smiling black woman with a mohawk. Of they're going to recognize you. So I had to calm that down. It's a lot of things, you know, but I refuse to be trapped in my house. I'm not that type of star. Leslie Jones,
2: thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for this book. Just thank you.
3: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it.
2: Leslie Jones is a comedian and author of a new memoir. Coming up, Maureen Corrigan reviews a new novel by Lauren Groff about an escape from a colonial settlement. This is Fresh Air.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. To learn more, go to cancer.org.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
2: In her new novel called The Vaster Wilds, Lauren Groff, who's been a finalist for the National Book Award three times, tells a harrowing story of an escape from Jamestown the first permanent English settlement
1: in the New World. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a review. Robinson Crusoe, generally considered to be the first novel in English, is also the granddaddy of survivor sagas. Crusoe, the castaway, spends decades on his proverbial desert island, crafting what actually turns out to be a very pleasant existence— His days are spent catching turtles and goats, making clothes, furniture, and a canoe, even journaling. Lauren Groff has said that Robinson Crusoe is one of the inspirations for her new historical novel, The Vaster Wilds. But her heroine's extreme adventure in the forest primeval of pre-colonial America— makes Crusoe's stint on his island seem like an all-inclusive vacation package at Club Med. The Vaster Wilds is set in the fledgling Jamestown colony around the winter of 1609 to 1610, a period known to historians as the Starving Time, because over 80% of the colonists died of disease and famine. Groff's main character doesn't have a name. She was abandoned at birth in England, and then at age four, she was removed from the poorhouse to work as a servant for a prosperous family. She's mostly called girl, wench, or worse, and she was simply taken along like baggage when the patriarch of the family she works for is lured by visions of the wealth of the new world. The novel opens on what's possibly the girl's first autonomous act. She escapes from the primitive fort at Jamestown. We're told that in the tall black wall of the palisade, through a slit too seeming thin for human passage, the girl climbed into the great and terrible wilderness. Why she runs away? is a question that hovers in the chill air until the very end of this novel, which turns out to be a test of endurance for the girl and for us readers as well. Equipped with a stolen hatchet, flint, warm cape, and boots, courtesy of a boy who's just died from smallpox, the girl runs. The girl runs and runs because, as she tells herself, If I stop, I will die. She runs through needles of ice that turn into down-sifting snow, which she's thankful for because it covers her footprints. One of the very early satisfying twists in this story occurs when the sadistic soldier who's dispatched to capture the girl is quickly engulfed by the violence lurking in the wilderness. Thanks to Groff's omniscient narrator, we readers know the soldier is a goner, but the girl herself never catches on that she's running from nobody. As the girl runs, sheltering in exhaustion in caves and hollowed-out tree trunks, she survives close brushes with wild beasts and a half-man, half-beast crazed Jesuit priest. Here's a tiny sampling of Groff's extended description of what 40 years alone in the wilderness have done to this priest. Human eyes were embedded within a matted mass of hair from the scalp, which had grown altogether into the hair from the beard and the back and the shoulders and chest, so that he wore a filthy, seedy, twiggy tunic out of which lower arms and legs did poke. The meat he ate was raw. All this time, he was full of worms. I always like to check out Groff's latest novels because she's such an evocative writer who always sets herself the challenge of doing something different. The domestic fiction of Fates and Furies was followed by the medieval historical fiction of The Matrix, which in turn is now followed by the eerie survival story of the vaster wilds. What would it be like to run away without knowing if there were any place to run to? That's the question that seems to impel the vaster wilds. With vivid exactitude, Groff dramatizes the answer. The ordeal would be terrifying, raw, brutal, and it must be acknowledged kind of exhausting in its repetitiveness. Groff tries to offset the monotony of this marathon run of a plot by including flashbacks to the girl's hard life in England and less successfully by having the girl formulate clumsy cultural commentary about the machinery of domination that was the English settlement of the new world. The deliverance offered by the vaster wilds may be more realistic than Robinson Crusoe's fortunate flagging down of a passing ship. But perhaps it's not too sentimental to wish that all that running could have ended in something more. Maureen
2: Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Bea Chaloner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya
4: Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Don't get caught without emergency medical coverage on an international trip. Learn how Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your trip from the unexpected at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.